Hi, I'm Lisa Weaver. Welcome to Healing Jephthah's Daughters, the podcast. Greetings, HJD listeners. If you are a regular listener, welcome back. If you are new to this podcast, welcome. We hope you become a regular companion with us on this journey towards freedom, healing, and wholeness. In the last two episodes, you have already met two women from my beloved sister circle. There are actually nine of us. Today, Reverends Dion Boissier, Adrian Thorne, and I are joined by another of our sisters, the Reverend Dr. P. Kimberly Jordan, Associate Director of Educational Design at Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning in Theology and Religion. In today's conversation, we discuss childhood memories, our father's stories, the impact of parenting, the imprint of parenting, and how all of it has shaped us. Let's listen in. Good morning, sisters. Good morning. Good morning. Hey. Come on in the room. Hey. Come on in the room. Jesus is my doctor. And he writes out all of my scriptions. And he gives me all my medicine in my room. Listen now, y'all going to start. <laughs> Go ahead, start it. So sisters, thank you for joining me in this conversation about a text you all know I've been living with for decades and a text that you know is not an electionary. Nobody preaches from. Mm. We've got to comb the reverends, doctors, Renita J. Weems, Will Gaffney, Nisha Jr. You know, we have to find the women who are going to tell the story. And you have all been so wonderful again in the journey. So before we dig into the focus text for today, refresh my memory. How does the story land for you? We have um, this book that we love, these holy texts that we love. And often what is lifted up is sort of an amazement that the text wasn't cleaned up, that stories like Jephthah are in there. Mm -hmm that the people who put the canon together showed us these people's stories in all its glory and messiness. So it's really interesting and it's really powerful that those stories are in there. And then what's interesting to me is that we then don't use them to elicit our own healing. So the fact that this doesn't make it into the lectionary, the fact that people get to seminary and have never heard this story, um, the fact that our foremothers and forefathers in the faith have essentially put in this book medicine that is healing for us in these stories, but that we then somehow don't use it or aren't able to access it. I think that's interesting. You raise another good point about the dissonance that the Bible can have for us, right? It's supposed to be this holy book of instructions and wisdom. What's the acronym Bible? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Right. How our biblical hermeneutic and interpretation is formed impacts how we read the text. So there's all of these ways that the church has formed us around this book. It is our sacred text. And yet there are these, to evoke Phyllis Tribble, texts of terror. Right. Right. There are these texts that we don't hear 
but there is a way that the Bible is used that makes these stories off limits, so to speak. Is it inerrant? Is it unquestionable? Do you have a literalist interpretation of it? Do you have a liberation interpretation? Right? How we approach it impacts what check what texts we choose to read and preach and study from. So I think about my uh, own growing up, and I remember my mother, when I moved to New York, she gave me a pink leather women's Bible. <laughs> and what made it a women's Bible was that it was pink leather. Uh, <laughs> it was an NIV. And um, the cool thing about it was that it had in the front, like these reading sections. So, you know, if you want to read about David, if you want to read about um, God's love, it would give you 10 readings and all these different topics. But uh, a couple of them related to women. There was one, if you want to read about women in the Bible. So I had grown up in, in church all my life. Um, I was not in a Bible thumping church. I was in a, you know, AME, you know, big mainstream church. We had Sunday school, but the texts used were relatively narrow. Uh, nobody was going out on a limb for the text. Uh, that's not what they were trying to make happen on a Sunday. Um, so um, I had a narrow sense of the Bible and in our, our neighborhood group, we had to bring Bible verses, but you know, when you have to repeat Bible verses, you repeat the one you can remember, not the one that's the most, you know, you're not going to judges to, to get a Bible verse to take to the, to the neighborhood group. <laughs> so, so I say all that to say when my mother gave me that as a young adult moving away from home, I discovered in that, that there were actually women in the Bible. Uh, I definitely heard about Mary probably heard about Jezebel and that about wraps it up. So that's those two poles of uh, women. Exactly. Right. So Jephthah, Jephthah's daughter, even judges that didn't really preach on a Sunday morning. So they were keeping it, I think, simpler to what they could handle. I mean, I, I wasn't raised around deep, deep, deep preaching, but I, when I found out that there were actually women in the Bible I was astonished and I was grown. Like I had I, at that point, and I, I had gone to Catholic school, and, you know, all that. So it wasn't that I was, you know, coming from a different religion or something. So the first thought for me with all these women, particularly the Hebrew scripture, was, wow, I'm in there too. Now, my first best friend in the Hebrew scripture was Miriam, but then I worked out from Miriam to all the other women through that NIV list. So my first thing was, I was glad that she was there because. I had been raised in a way that the Bible was all men and women were maybe bystanders. They weren't counted. Remember how the 5,000 was supposed to be 5,000 men and then the rest of them people could have been 10,000 women and children, but we're just going to make it a miracle for 5,000 because it's 5,000 men. <laughs> See, I, that I carried in me that sense that women were not important. So, so this was any woman who showed up in the Bible, especially women with a name, that for me was amazing and astonishing. So that's my first entree into Jephthah's daughter that she showed up. Kim, I like that point about Mary and Jezebel. Mm-hmm. Saint in the center. I'm going to say the holy and the whore. Total binaries of women. Dichotomies. That's right. Yeah. Well, I wasn't raised to be a thinking woman of faith. And what I mean that I was raised to be a thinking woman, but when it came to faith, you didn't think about it. So the questions that we're asking now, these kinds of things, anytime I would ask any questions, you know, I was told children are to be seen and not heard. Right. And so these were not conversations that you had uh, um, discussions about because that meant that you questioned God. And so there was no room for any of that. I knew about Miriam 
because my grandmother's name was Miriam. Mm. And so we knew about the women in the Bible because there was either a Calypso that was made about Jezebel or about somebody else. And so you knew because they were talking, you know, about that in, in, in one of the songs in the culture that came up because we were also brought up, you don't wear red nail polish because that's too Jezebel-like, no red lipstick, none of that kinds of stuff. And again, you were not um, compared to any woman in society. You were compared to the biblical women when it came down to those kinds of things. So that dichotomy was, again, the same for me, Kim, as, 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 you know, in terms of the Mary and the Jezebel, right? Um, and and um, and then of, of course, and then Mary and Martha were also. I knew about them because again, they used those to describe my grandmother's and her sisters. The thing that I'm keeping track of in my head, what I'm hearing, speaks to Kim. I think what you and Adrian, all of us are saying in different ways, is we heard about Mary. Mary is so virtuous and pure and holy. We heard about Jezebel, and then we hear about Mary and Martha, those good virtuous. Fish frying, grit staring women. Or Delilah. I forgot about Delilah. Delilah was another one I did know about Delilah too. So Jephthah's daughter, I, I did not even begin to think about hearing about Jephthah or his daughter until I was in seminary, quite frankly. I'm saying that to say, when you ask the question, how does this land? The, the story landed hard, real hard, um, because it was reality for a lot of us. It was, I saw my story. In her story. Mm. Yeah. The other unnamed woman that I knew about that was on the Mary level was Proverbs 31. This Proverbs 31 woman, we all knew about her also. And so that was the other unnamed woman, but she named but unnamed was the one we were supposed to aspire to, right? Um, in, in where I was from. There was no, um, I mean, the only subversion was happening in the kitchen and who was going to make what and who was going to put what in, in whose food to hush them up or to whatever. That was the most subversive that they went. They was not going to be bold to do anything other than that. But they were in control of the pop. You understand? So other than that, you know, that was it. That immediately took me back to laws that were enacted that prevented drugs, medicinals, drugs from being sold to people of African descent, because I guess there was too many white slave owners passing out after they ate greens and they're like, okay, they poisoning us. So these subversive ways that women, black women, oppressed communities, right, have been formed to behave, to act, to show up just to survive. Right, right. Right, but the daughters of Zelophehad, yep. who actually changed the law. Yeah. Right. Said, oh, then he was Moses. Like uh, God said, they're right. They actually are entitled to an inheritance. Yeah, Lisa, I feel like you're starting to make a turn when you start talking about the daughters of Zelophehad because there was something in those women, certainly, but there was also something in their father. Yeah. That allowed for that to happen. And so I think that starts to turn us towards the fathers and why women feel the need to go into the marketplace or to find their agency in the pots or to um, to be subversive. And it gets back to, to dads and husbands and 
what the Bible says women's worth are through sons and husbands and fathers and grandfathers. But I think what you guys are highlighting is this fact that our subversion comes in like this very narrow place. Mm. And then those daughters of Zelophehad, they did something different, but I think they also could do something different because of who their daddy was, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't he make a shift. So when I think about my father who um, he gets to the end of his life and I'm in this long conversation with him one day and he said, if I had any regrets that I didn't spend more time with you all growing up. And he said, especially my brother, but I think the, the regret was with all of us. And what he finally said was, you know, I was, he was born in 1941 and he basically said, I did what I was supposed to do. I did what I was taught to do. But at the end of the day, I felt like I got the short end of the stick. Because my mom knew us, my mom knew our relationships, my mom knew our teachers. And, and I was, remember being in college and having a conversation with my dad about, do you love me? Because he was working all the time and my mom put the bandages on our knees and did all the stuff. And my dad was, he started cursing. <laughs> do I love, who do you, who do you think put this roof of, who do you think paid for those ballet lessons? Who do you, and it was all about money. But then later in that conversation, when he said, he said of himself, I'm just the dude that pays the bills. And that just broke my heart because he did what he was supposed to do. He felt like he got the short end of the stick, mm -hmm. but he also is the one who made sure we knew how to change the tire, change the oil in our car. Yeah. Um, but I think these different kind of dads, my brother-in-law who stayed home for a decade while my sister pursued her academic career, yeah. I think these different kinds of dads make it possible for us to have a bigger slice than the pots as the source, as the location of our agency. That's deep. That is, that's good. I was actually really resonating with Adrian's story um, because of, uh, as a girl, I, I basically had two dads because my mom was married to my dad um, and he was... Uh, not a, he was, he was abusive to her. Um, she therefore at the advice of her obstetrician, uh, got in the car six months pregnant and drove from their home in Washington, DC to North Carolina, um, to my grandparents' house. Uh, and there we lived, uh, for, um, until I went to college, um, and she and my father divorced. So, that that's dad, but my grandfather really was my dad. Now the the blessing of my grandfather being my dad is that, and it, I guess it wasn't a blessing. He um was he had a degenerative spinal issue, so uh, he progressed into a wheelchair and and was between a walker and a wheelchair, which meant that he'd had to retire from work early. So it meant I got to hang out with him as a little person. Uh, like he taught me how to play cards, you know, he, um, he made up a card game that we used to play every day. And like, he was the person I hung out with and he was a delight. Like he was everything kind of opposite my dad. Um, and so I, I learned this wonderful relationship with him partially because he had, he had already, you know, done the providing, like we were in his house that he had bought before he had to retire. My grandmother was there. She was still working. So it was, it was an end because I was the only grandchild and it was a time that I only in retrospect see how stressful it was because his spinal cord was degenerating, right? I didn't see that as a little person. Um, 
I was the apple of his eye. Like I, I, I got, I had the blessing and favor of growing up in a situation where um, they delighted in me because I was the good that came out of that really difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Only in retrospect have I been able to see that. Wow. But, but I want to say that to connect to Adrian's dad though, because now I'm a parent. Um, I, I don't have the, I'm not the stay at home and hang out with my kids all day. And my, you know, we live in New York city, so it's all very busy. So working mom, working husband. Uh, and so I understand sometimes when, especially now I've got teenagers, um, you know, they want the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And, but they want to interrupt every aspect of work that I'm doing. Let's have, you know, every 15 minutes, somebody's popping in asking me a question or asking me to take them somewhere in the middle of the day, that kind of thing. And I'm like, you understand that my work provides for us, for our living. Um, could you not support <laughs> that? Mm. So it's this, it's this weird stretch of parenting, right? Because we understand that we must provide for our children um, on the basic, but then we also want to provide more for our children it's the time, but it's also all the provision things. So, and then we expect, even though they're too small to understand it, we expect some reciprocity for that. If, if I'm going to provide for you, can you respect my work uh, and understand that this is part of how I say, I love you because I give, you know, 50 hours of my time every week to this thing so that we can live here. Mm. So I think it's a, it's a very complex space um there's a lot to talk about in parenting and what uh jephthah himself thought or understood how he brought that from his previous time and how you know in such an erroneous way i think he probably thought he was doing the right thing because he'd made a promise i'm not defending him because he's it's indefensible because he didn't stop to think he just followed an example, but it is the complexity of being a parent, being a child. I just, I, I feel it very much uh, from, from all the roles that now at this point in life I've taken. I, it's interesting to me, just, just listening to the stories, uh, especially to the daddy stories. I, I am a daddy's girl. I would, I'll say that. And without any shame. <laughs> at all. Um, I grew up with him as a best friend. I could talk to my father about anything and vice versa. So, I mean, to the point where there was certain challenges and we would have conversations and I'd be like, dad, that's like TMI. <laughs> Don't really need to know that. Right. <laughs> you know, but I think because we, um, we're the I mean, I don't remember actually ever hearing my father say the words, I love you Mm. until I was actually a very, very grown woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I, and I, and then I taught him how to text on the phone and all of these kinds of things now as he's getting older. So he'll, he, and he's finding all of the emojis and all of these other (laughs) different things. Right. Um, But my father protected me. So equating love for me was you protecting me. And so even with the, the story of Jephthah, for me, it was my, and I, in, in romantic love, I find that that's an issue for me as well. If I do not feel protected and safe, then I don't see that there is no love. You could, Buy me all of the things that you want to buy, all of the things that you want. But if you don't feel safe or protected, and I also know that that's a part of my um, being a, uh, you know, a survivor of intimate violence, 
this is um, this is something for me that has been an issue. And so provision for my father, he was born in 1940. And so it, it was a big thing too. You had to provide for your family. You had to protect your family, right? And you are the one, and, and you are the one also sort of to give the guidance, right? So you are the, you are the one that is, if we're going biblical here, the head of the house, right? And he never enforced that role, that part of it, because he didn't grow up with the church nonsense. He didn't grow up in that way. As a matter of fact, he grew up being a rebel. I mean, so for me, again, the showing up, the protection for me and the feeling safe. So I don't have children, um, but I, uh, but, but the but creating that kind of space. And so I think that's why this story lands hard for me because he didn't protect her. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's a problem because he could have made different choices to make sure that, that she was protected. And so I think for me, in terms of daddy, um, that's what a daddy does. There's a line that can be drawn between what we see at home and what we expect as adults, right? How we enter into those relationships as adults, like childhood imprints this pattern. And so this notion of protection, Jephthah doesn't go back and say, oh, let me see if I can renegotiate with God. Like, right. oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. His thing is he tears his clothes, mm-hmm. which is a sign of grief and mourning, but his words don't reflect that. But when you think about the trauma that he's experienced, I think he can both do the public rending and then blame her for messing up things or making him look bad. Because we see people do that. We see people have these like crazy reactions. Like my dad would do things that were incredibly progressive for a man born in 1941. And then at the same time could be like, girl, you need to get back in the house and put on a slip. It's like, nobody cares if I'm wearing a slip. He would say, it's winter out. You need to put on a slip. And I I remember being a little kid, like six years old going, how is like another skirt going to keep, make this skirt warmer? The cold air is still going to blow up the skirt, right? (laughs) Yes. It would have made more sense if you said go in the house and put on some pants. And there were these tropes that he believed in that laid alongside this, my daughters are going to know how to change the tire on their car, which was like, it's like, what? And so you could say in a way that he was almost schizophrenic because I feel like he was trying to, I've got three daughters and one son and my daughters are not going to be stupid. And that was amazing. What And his, you can do this. And my sisters played basketball and he was at all those games and he coached my brother's football team and he coached my sister's teams. And um, he would do very stereotypical things where you were like, what is wrong with you? So I I feel like that makes sense that Jephthah could do both things. Adrienne, the other part of that line in my house was my daughter, my granddaughter is not going to have to grow up to depend on some man. But I think that one of the things that breaks my heart about this story is that notion of protection. Because at the end of the day, I always come back to he was her father. He was supposed to protect her. And yet it went absolutely opposite. But again, I have a bit more sympathy or something with that now and and my son my older son and I just had this conversation a couple of weeks ago you about to kill Lisa she's got she's about done I'm gonna wait for Kim to finish because my head is exploding go ahead well because the protection piece like uh he wrote a paper for sociology of racism that had something to do with racism in school but the point of our dialogue was to say the thing that I regret the most as a parent is that my two black 
children, I cannot guarantee their safety. I cannot 100% guarantee their safety. As much as I try, we got 15 locks on the door. We make sure that, you know, what all the stuff, right? The half tank is, is an empty tank. We do everything we can. At the end of the day, I know that their lives are fragile, particularly to the police system in this country and in general to racist violence. And I cannot, as hard as I try, as hard as I work, as, as much as I pray, I cannot make that go away. And that, that is so, so protection, right? Like it, it maybe there's a myth of protection. I try to do what I can, but I know it's not, it's not wall to wall hundred percent, you know, and, and that breaks my heart about the, the life I live as a, as a mother. Okay, so Lisa, your face is about to blow up, right? I, we can we can see it, and we can feel like feel it. I'm a salty heifer. I'm just a mad heifer <laughs> right about now. But so so, let me ask you then this question. Don't be asking me no questions. This is my show. Don't ask me no questions. Tell me why you mad. Tell me why. you mad? Why you mad? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm so grateful for y'all. No, answer the question. So because you and Kim sit between being daughter and parent, right? There's, there's a perspective and, yep. you know, all my, you know, decades of, you know, friendship and sistership with you, wonderful woman and, you know, spiritual directors and therapists. I've come to have what I will call a compassionate understanding of Jephthah. And so Adrian, when you talk about the complexity of parenting, like they do this and they intend this, but they want to do something else, right? I, I I get that. I get those tensions of Kim, like, your, you know, the wonderful story about your grandfather, right? And how does your experience inform how you parent your children? And because my parents separated, I was eight. Mm-hmm. So as an only child by default, there's a particularity to the experience of only children. So by default, you kind of are like the favorite. It wasn't default. Because <laughs> you're the only. <laughs> right. I'm your favorite because I'm your only. And that lasted till I was eight when they broke up. And so I've always experienced absence as a choice. Like, why won't he? Why doesn't he? Right? Because, you know, he separated from my mother, which was his second wife, and went on to his third and that family. So my experience was the, okay, don't look back, rearview mirror broken. And so part of what that experience formed me to do is, okay, I have to figure this out. Like, I have to figure this out and I have to provide. My mother was compromised in particular kinds of ways that she, there was but so much she could do. So I'm like, so I have to figure this out. So I'm eight, right? So grow up, grow up, grow up. Spent some time, I lived with him. Transitioned from my mother's house to his home with his family. Left that after not a long time and not particularly well. And I'm like, okay, so I have to figure this out. So I figured out how to pay rent. I figured out how to pay tuition. I figured out how to go to school. I figured out how to get a job, right? And so for me, I'm like, he didn't protect her. And I understand that Jephthah learned that children are expendable because his father didn't defend him, right? So he is a product of that. But the dissonance is I can understand now, Jephthah. I can understand now my father. Okay, this makes perfect sense, right? But but you have to work through... Okay, now that I understand it intellectually, I got to deal with the hurt and the trauma and the wounds of this guy not showing up. A basic principle of communications theory states that what a speaker intends to communicate is not always what the listener hears and understands. 
there is almost always a gap. That gap represents the space where additional information could have made the speaker's message clearer. That gap also represents the place where the listener could receive an unintended message from the listener's communication. What is a miscommunication from the listener's point of view is a misunderstanding from the speaker's point of view. Similarly, what parents understand and intend in their child rearing is not always what their children understand and experience. For a parent, paying the bills may equal love, but if what the child experiences is the absence of the parent, the child could still feel unloved. And that absence could be for myriad reasons. The parent has to work long hours. The parents are separated or divorced. The parent is just not physically present. All these parents often love their children. But children do not experience absence as love. They do not have the capacity to interpret the adult world. And children, like adults, are not mind readers. There's a gap in what the parent understands as love and what the child experiences as love. What parents need to be mindful of is that children only know what you tell them and what they see. Don't tell a child, well, you should know. They shouldn't. They are children, and children cannot interpret the adult world. However, when the child becomes an adult, they have the ability to understand as an adult and reflect on their experiences differently. But just because they can reflect on their childhood experiences maturely and have language to explain and interpret what happened, it does not mean that the wounds of those childhood experiences have gone away. Understanding does not erase the pain. It just makes its causes clearer. What then becomes the healing work of the wounded adult daughter, the wounded adult child? Four things minimally. One, to acknowledge the pain, to own that you are hurting, grieving, or whatever word best describes your pain. Some wounded children walk around like Susie Sunshine. Everything is perfect and nothing is wrong. That is not a healthy response. Other children walk around like angry Andre, always cranky and cutting people's heads off, never a kind, soft, or pleasant word to say. That is not a healthy response either. Acknowledge that you're hurting. Two. To understand what caused the pain. You know the who. It's your parent. What you are seeking to be clear about is what your parent did or did not do that caused you pain. Were they absent? Unsupportive? Manipulative? Abusive? Identify the words, actions, and behaviors, or lack thereof. You will need to identify them because if you don't, you will end up in relationships with people with those exact characteristics and you already know that's not good for you. Three, to understand that your parents have a childhood history and that their childhood history may well have contributed to them being the parent they are to you or were to you. We have the benefit of knowing Jephthah's story. We don't always get to know our parents' story. 
who our parents are to us becomes further complicated if parents were raised in communities that did not believe in therapy, thought therapy was for white folks, or firmly held to what happens in this house stays in this house. Some parents didn't get help in healing their own wounds because many never thought of themselves as wounded, and many never knew healing was even an option. Finally, to take some of the sting and fever out of your anger, bitterness, disappointment with your parent by understanding that parents are limited. Period. They are emotionally, psychologically, and or physically limited in their capacity to meet your needs. Do not torture yourself with asking if they are unwilling or unable. It doesn't matter. In the final analysis, the fact is that they were limited in their ability to meet your needs. These are just a few ways to engage your healing work. These questions, and this podcast for that matter, are not a substitute for therapy with a trained, licensed mental health professional. They are, however, questions that you can explore before or in session with your mental health professional or spiritual director. Even if you are not in a formal therapeutic relationship, a good old journal is also a place to explore answers to these questions. These are weighty questions. Pain is weighty. And the remedy, the healing, is not quick or easy or light. Take your time with these questions. Do not answer them all at once. Take one at a time. Reflect in whatever way works for you. It's your journey. And in the journeying, take care of you. As always, my prayer for you is freedom, healing, and wholeness. <laughs>